All right, we are in Acts chapter 1, and I'm just going to reread the short portion that we've been camped in for the last two studies. We'll be camped there again today, and then we will probably do, Lord willing, two more studies in this portion before we move on to the rest of Acts 1. And um, for those who are anticipating, uh, the rest of Acts 1 should be much quicker than these few verses have been just because of the great significance of what these few verses describe. So we're focused on the great focal point event in the life of the Lord Jesus that we call the ascension of Christ, the return of the Lord to heaven. And we're reading again from verse 9 through 11. The Lord is speaking to the disciples. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. All right, so last week's study, and I want to continue that. This is really part two of last week. But last week's study, I focused on one specific phrase, which is at the end of verse nine. As they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud, we identified that cloud as not just a random cloud in the sky, but the same spiritual cloud that appears periodically at key moments throughout the Old Testament, the cloud that led the children of Israel out of Egypt through the wilderness, across the Red Sea into the wilderness and through the wilderness, and then that same cloud which, which um, filled the tabernacle when it was constructed by Moses and filled the temple when it was constructed by Solomon and is in each case it's the same cloud that, that settled on Mount Sinai as Moses went into the cloud to receive the law and the blueprint for the construction of the tabernacle. In each of those cases, it's identified as the, the glory cloud, the Shekinah. It's the cloud that the Lord uses as a garment to wrap his excessively brilliant glory in so that his people are not overwhelmed by the revelation of his presence among them. And so that cloud receives the Lord Jesus or takes the Lord Jesus. And then this last phrase of verse nine, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And I've identified that this portion of Acts one, which does describe the ascension, is the ascension through the eyes of the apostles, through the eyes of the 11. But their vision is limited because they can only see as far as their physical eyes are able to uh, enable them to, to see. And so they see him go into the cloud, and as soon as, in a sense, he disappears in the cloud, they lose track of him, lose sight of him. And the question I asked in our study last week is, what happened next? And so we went to the book of Daniel. Uh, I'll jump over there in a minute, uh, a little bit further in our study today. Uh, we went to the book of Daniel and saw that in Daniel's vision in chapter seven, he saw what 
the 11 disciples were unable to see because he was given a vision of what happened next, which was the ascension of Christ back to heaven. And he describes that ascension event as a presentation of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days means God the Father spiritually seated upon the throne and the Son of Man being the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, arriving back into heaven in his return, in the ascension, and then there being a, an exchange between God the Son and God the Father as he steps forward to greet the Father and the Father rewards him. And we saw the reward in the Daniel prophecy was a kingdom and glory and dominion, a kingdom that would start at that point as the Son of Man sits upon the throne and then never ends, continues on forever beyond that point. Now for today's study, I said we would, uh, we would tackle a portion that is just as prophetic as Daniel, but prophetic in a different way. So if you would turn with me over to the book of Revelation. I say prophetic in a different way because Daniel's prophecy, his experience was approximately 600 years before the event of the ascension. And, and I, I think I emphasized that what an amazing thing that is for us, for our encouragement and comfort and confidence in the Lord. That 600 years before a historic event, a, a critically important one, the ascension, but 600 years before it actually happens, Daniel is given a vision of what would take place when it happened which indicates that God controlled everything between the time of Daniel's vision and the actual fulfillment of the event, showing just how much God is actually in control of history. And of course, Bible prophecy can't function as Bible prophecy unless God is that much in control of history. Now, this portion that we're going to read in the book of Revelation, the focus of our study this morning is gonna be chapter five, and you might remember at the end of the study last week, I saved it because I only had about 10 minutes left and I realized I've got more than 10 minutes of stuff to say about this. I mean, I've got a lot more than 10 minutes. I, I was looking, it, I had more time this week, of course, to revisit chapter five, even though I was prepared to teach it last week. And uh, I could easily, trust me, easily uh, develop chapter five study on the ascension into six or eight weeks of a teaching series. But since we're already camping in this Acts portion for several weeks, I'm gonna to try to just do all of chapter five in one week today. And of course, I'll just be doing overview because I, I simply won't have time to go into the depth that some of the details in the chapter deserve. But this is a prophecy of a different sort than Daniel's prophecy. Daniel, 600 years before it happens, sees the event of the ascension. Now there's difference among Bible scholars. Some are right and some are wrong on this issue. And as in terms of when the book of Revelation was written. It was either written just immediately prior to the events of 70 AD. So 
in the late 60s of the first century. And that's the viewpoint I strongly hold to. I'm 1,000% convinced of. And, but others believe it's as late as the mid-90s, some 30 years later than the actual date of the writing of the book. Either way, when did the ascension happen? Approximately what year in the first century did the ascension actually happen? 30 A.D. So if John is receiving this vision, let's say the year 65, 66, somewhere in that range, A.D., then he's at least 35 years after the event. And if it's as far in the future as 95 AD, their future, not ours, of course, then that's even further into the future. And the point being that John is, I'm identifying chapter five, and you'll see why as we go through the details. I'm identifying chapter five as a vision of the ascension of Christ. And what's problematic about that? There's nothing theologically or doctrinally problematic, but what's problematic in terms of what we're used to is most Christians, almost all nowadays, think of the book of Revelation as only talking about far distant future events, events that are still in our future. And of course, at the end of the book, there are still things in the book of Revelation that are in our future, in the, in the future of the world itself, history itself. But there's lots of stuff, lots more than people normally uh, are aware of. I'm talking about believing people that are past events or near future events. And there are some even that are present events like chapter two and chapter three, which are a sequence of seven letters to seven churches that were functioning and, and living out their Christian life as, as congregations in chapters two and three, those are present tense events, things that are happening at that present moment. So you have in prophecy, and this is true, by the way, not just to Revelation, it's true of many Bible prophecies. Bible prophecy can address future events, it can address present events, and it can address past events. What makes it prophecy is not that it's always future related, but that it is a revealed perspective from God about certain events in history, whether those events have already taken place, whether they're currently taking place, or whether they will in the future inevitably take place. In this case, chapter five is a look backwards. It's a look backwards at one of the most important events that have ever happened, the ascension of Christ. Now, what we're gonna do is read a long section, and it's well worth the, the time sacrifice from my actual teaching to do this portion of reading. I'm gonna read two chapters because they belong together. The chapters are chapter four and chapter five. I'm only going to teach on chapter five. What I want you to notice, chapter four is the beginning of the heavenly vision of John the Apostle. You'll see right in verse one, he, in a sense, arrives in heaven in his vision, and he's given a, a kind of a spiritual tour of the throne room of heaven by an accompanying angel. What I want you to look for in chapter four is what's missing. And then when we get to chapter five, 
what's missing will become clearly and significantly evident. And the what's missing is more like this. Who is missing in chapter 4? Where is he? And of course, the one that I'm asking you to look for in this, uh, in this exercise is, where is the Lord Jesus? Chapter 4, verse 1. So I'm going to read through both chapters, and then we'll camp in chapter 5. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. By the way, those, those uh, spiritual phenomenon that were taking place as John observed them in the throne of heaven were the same exact spiritual things, the phenomenon that were taking place at Mount Sinai at the giving of the law when the glory cloud came down upon the mountain. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is, and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him. Why do they fall down? They're worshiping him. They're prostrating themselves before him. They fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him. They're falling down as an act or an expression of worship. And worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So we have the scene of the throne room of heaven and there's only one critically important element missing. And that is where is the Lord Jesus. Nowhere to be seen in chapter 4. The one who sits upon the throne, the Ancient of Days, God the Father, is there spiritually. And he is being worshipped by all the hosts of heaven as he deserves. But the Lord Jesus is not in the scene at all. Chapter 5 starts, though, connecting the two chapters with the word then. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne 
a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And in this lament, a description which is a, a lament, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. The implication being the scroll should be opened, but it cannot be because no one is able to. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy. So here the, the ability to open it is not just a physical strength that's required, but a spiritual worthiness, a qualification to open it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found. By the way, I'll, I'll just say, say this, small detail. Sometimes you'll hear heaven described as a place where there are no tears. Now, later in the book of Revelation, at the grand finale, the great culmination, at the end of the book, and the end of history, the end and the, 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 the climactic finale of the great plan and purpose of redemption and salvation, there is a moment where God says he will wipe away every tear and there will be no more tears. But we're not at that point yet. And at this point, John in heaven, representing humanity, is overwhelmed and weeping loudly because no one in heaven and earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, who are we talking about with the elders here? These are the 24 mysterious beings that are seated upon the 24 thrones that surround the central throne. You've heard me talk about these 24 thrones before, but it's, it's just uncommon to traditional Christian perspective of heaven. The expectation being that if you were allowed to go to visit heaven itself and to enter the throne room of God, you would see a single throne and that's all you would see. It's not true. You would see 25 total thrones in heaven. One great throne at the center of the others but then 24 surrounding thrones 24 elders seated upon them and one of those elders says to John interrupting his his lament his weeping weep no more behold the lion of the tribe of Judah the root of David has conquered so that he and the emphasis in the verse here is on the word he so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the 24, or excuse me, between the throne and the four living creatures, among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. So I, I thought about maybe putting this on the board, but I don't want to get us too wrapped up in you know, physical, spatial circumstances here. But this is, you understand, I, I hope you believe this. Heaven is a real place. It's not, it, you know, using modern scientific terminology and even science fiction terminology, it's no doubt in a different dimension than this 
physical reality in which we live, but that doesn't make it any less real. If anything, it's as real as this physical world in which we live and even more real. How can it be more real? Because it's more enduring. This physical reality is going to have a specific, defined, and appointed endpoint. And all of the elements in this present world are one day, as Peter insists in 2 Peter chapter 3, they're all going to be burned up. They're all going to be replaced by a new heavens and a new earth. But this one, this location, the throne room of heaven, is not going to be burned up and will endure forever and ever and ever. So in verse 6, you have a spatial clue. The spatial clue is this. You have a central throne, and in chapter 4, you had a description of four living creatures immediately surrounding. They were the closest beings, other than the one who sat upon the central throne, they're the four beings in closest physical or spatial proximity to the central throne. So you have a central throne, you have four living creatures that are in other places, like in the prophecy of Isaiah, for instance, they're described as flying around the throne and focused on the throne and proclaiming certain things toward the one and about the one who's seated on the throne. But here, between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders. So spatially, you have the central throne, you have the four living creatures, and in concentrically larger circles, you have the 24 thrones that are arranged around the central throne. And then suddenly, the spotlight of heaven in chapter five of Revelation focuses on one being, one person, who is between the throne and the four living creatures, but also among the elders. The, the description is simply showing this one is walking into the room. And in walking into the room, he breaks the outer circle of the 24 thrones, walking, I don't know which two thrones he walked between, but he walked between two of those 24 thrones, and now he is actually even passing the four flying living creatures around the throne, the proclaiming creatures around the throne, and he is in the direction of his progress and his travel. He is heading for the throne. Is everybody following the, the picture? Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went, this is the lamb, who we understand and know was also introduced back in chapter, uh, verse 5 as the lion. So you have one being who is characterized in two distinct ways. And spiritually speaking, it's possible and we understand it and we can, we can combine these concepts in a single person, but helps us to understand this isn't this isn't a literally physically literally true account this is a spiritually true account jesus you understand jesus is the lion in verse five right but he, jesus is not a lion physically 
He didn't arrive in heaven and morph into a lion, but he's described as a lion because there is a symbolic connotation to what a lion represents. And in verse six, he doesn't morph into a lamb, but he is being symbolically represented by the lamb and all it conveys. And what content we're meant to take out of him being portrayed as both a lion and a lamb at the same time is based upon what has previously been revealed in the Old Testament. And we'll just briefly in a minute jump to passages that make those connections for us. So verse eight again, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went, the lion and the lamb, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. The details matter. The scroll was not given to him in John's account. The scroll was taken by him from the hand of the one who sits upon the throne. And he is, of course, as the whole chapter sets up for us, the only one that could possibly do this. First and foremost, how are you even going to get there if you're in this scene? You know, John only got there because he was taken there in order to be a witness and to write these things for our sake. But let's say you were somehow managing to, you know, how people will sneak into big events, you know, like Super Bowl just happened. I'm sure so there's at least one person that tried to sneak into the Super Bowl. The cheapest seat was $5,000. You know, I'm sure somebody was trying to avoid the, the toll, you know, and sneak into the event. And in human events, there's always ways to sneak in. There's no sneaking into this event. There's no way you can sneak in. You just can't get there by sneaking. But let's say you were able to get in there into the throne room as this is happening and you see him heading for the throne and you see the one seated on the throne holding the scroll. Even if you were to sprint and reach the throne before he did, number one, you wouldn't make it there alive. Number two, if you did and you happen to lay your hand upon the scroll of the, that was in the hand of the one seated upon the throne, whose grip is stronger, yours or the one seated upon the throne. There's no way you're going to be able to take that scroll out of his hand unless you happen to be the one designated to receive it. And so the the lamb steps forward and he takes the scroll because he and he alone qualifies to receive this scroll. He takes the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne And then verses 8 through 14, I'm going to read them, but they're simply a wonderful description of how all of heaven reacts and responds to what has just transpired before their eyes. They've just seen something happen that has never happened in all of history before this moment. And they have greater understanding than we typically do. Now, because it's revealed, written for us, we have the opportunity 
to come up to their level of understanding, to gain their heavenly perspective. But they get it in a way that the vast majority of the population of this planet has never gotten. And they begin to do something that the vast majority of the population of this planet does not do. And even here we are on a Sunday morning is not currently doing. And don't even think of the whole planet. Just think of Northridge. We happen to be located in Northridge. How many people in Northridge today are doing what we're doing compared to how many people in Northridge are doing anything other than this? And the people in heaven who observe this event taking place, this transfer of a scroll from one hand to another, they, starting in verse 8 through the rest of the chapter, they respond in what we know as worship. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Now I asked the question back in chapter 4, why were the 24 elders falling down before the one who was seated upon the throne? It's a falling down in prostrate worship. And now that worship is extended and this is the first time that worship is extended beyond the one who sits upon the throne, the Ancient of Days, God the Father. And it is now given equally without shame, without apology, with the same fullness of spiritual understanding and focus to the Lamb that was previously reserved only for the Ancient of Days. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This is, uh, this is old covenant tabernacle and tem- temple imagery of the altar of incense uh, representing the faithful prayers, the gathered and preserved prayers of God's people. It's one of the greatest images of prayer in all of Scripture in that uh, what is clearly indicated is how valuable prayer is in the eyes of the Lord. He appoints golden bowls to hold our prayers and he clearly is preserving them. Meaning they're not just like sometimes if someone asks you to do a favor for them, it might be if your attention is split, might be in one ear and out the other. But it's never that way for the one who sits upon the throne. So the 24 elders fall down before the, the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. They who? The four living creatures and the 24 elders who are in focus in verse 8. They sang a new song. Now, what I want you to think about as you consider that concept, that brief description in verse 9, is periodically when we worship here in our Sunday services, we will add a new song to our rotation. And, you know, we try to be 
we try to be, and you, un, you understand this for, for spiritually responsible reasons, we try to be particular about what songs we add to our rotation. Why are we particular about the songs we add? Because they're the content of our worship. The worship songs are different than any other songs people will ever sing in all of history because they are doctrinal in content. And it's important that what you sing, the lyrics of what you sing represents the, the truths that are revealed to us in God's holy word. But what I, what I, I think is so wonderful about this verse they sang a new song. This is a new song being added to heaven's rotation. New song implies new content. Because as, I mean, think of it this way. How many of you have certain songs on our list? And our list is much bigger than the ones we sang this morning, right? How many of you have certain favorite songs on our list? Our extended list. How many of you have certain songs that, while you know they're worship songs, and if the leader chooses them and we're singing them, you do choose to enter into worship, but they're far from your favorite. I have certain songs. Uh, I'm not telling you which ones. <laughs> I have certain songs that I have to, uh, I have to refocus my heart's attention the moment I hear the first line. Because I, I have an immediate reaction of kind of cringing. But then I realize, come on, this is worship. It's not about your taste in music. It's about the one who sits upon the throne. And so I, you know, I, I make that adjustment and I enter into worship. That's because there are some songs that are better than others here in this world. But think of heaven's worship rotation. Think of all the songs, whatever songs were being sung prior to this moment in verse 9. Were there any bad ones on the list? Probably not. Probably every song was superior to the best of the ones that we sing, other than maybe when we're singing one of the psalms put to modern music. And we, have, we do have a few of those, thankfully. Or other portions of Scripture, just quoting directly from Scripture as the lyric of the song. And I'm not saying worship songs have to be limited just to that. But you understand, worship songs in heaven, in terms of the lyrics, I think God is pretty particular about what lyrics he wants sung in heaven. And if he were to hear a lyric he didn't like, I think he dropped the song from the list. But that's, you know, that's just trying to imagine heaven as if it were our worship service here. It's not. It's greater than. It's better than. It's more pure than. It's more holy than. The best that we do here and now. And so I want you to just think, why a new song? Why is that even needed? Because in chapter 4... What was missing? He had not arrived back into heaven yet. Now he has. And not just arrived, he's st- 
stepped boldly and confidently forward and taken the scroll out of the hand of the one who sits upon the throne. And now heaven has a new reason to worship. And of course, we're called to follow heaven's footsteps with investing our lyrics of the worship that we participate in here and now with the same substance that their worship was focused on. And thankfully, the Lord, by his uh, grace, has included some of the lyric for us that we can understand, well, what was so great about this new song? And I will just tell you, it was great. There's no song greater than this. Verse nine, they sang a new song saying, these are the lyrics of the new song that was sung at the ascension of Christ. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. By the way, what, what is that scroll? It's described back in, uh, back in verse one. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. But there's nowhere in the chapter where the scroll is named or described other than a description of what it looks like. It looks like a scroll, parchment rolled up in a roll, which was a common way of publishing books in those days or important documents. And then at the point where that scroll is folded or or rolled, the, the very edge of the paper was then sealed, not with a single seal, to secure its contents from prying eyes that have no business knowing what's in the scroll, but it was sealed with a total of seven seals. Now, I've got a whole shelf in my library of Revelation commentaries. And (laughs) you would think, okay, these are the best scholars, the best students of God's word. They'll have the answer on this scroll. And there's like 17 different ideas on what the scroll actually is. I'm going to give you my thoughts on the scroll. I didn't come up with this. I didn't invent this idea. I'm following in the footsteps of better teachers than myself. It's, it's a combination of concepts. In the ancient world, a document that was sealed with seven seals was typically what we would call a last will and testament. It was such an important paper that inheritance was conveyed through that document. And so we call those documents testaments, will and testament. And of course, we happen to have a document that is published under one cover now, thankfully. We call it the Holy Bible. And it consists of two main categories or two main portions, two main sections. And we call them the old, help me out here, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And those terms, Old Testament and New Testament, 
correspond to what we also, in a more biblical sense, understand as Old Covenant and New Covenant. And this document, this scroll, happened to be written on both sides, meaning there's two parts to the document. I personally believe it has to do with what we call the Old and the New Testament, the Old and the New Covenant. This is, and all that those convey, and all that the covenants convey, there's only two in history that the Bible identifies, the Old Covenant and the New. All that they convey is, covenants are all about how God interacts with and relates to humanity. And so it includes all of the blessings that are poured out upon a person's life when they are in right covenant relationship with the Lord and all of the consequences that are conveyed when people disregard him, disobey him, rebel against him, and ignore the call of his covenant relationship with them. So I think it has something to do with all of that. That all belonged exclusively to the Ancient of Days, and it is now possessed by, taken by, held by, and therefore administrated by, ruled by, the one who is both lion and lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, and this is an expression of worship, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive, and then a list in song of seven things he is worthy to receive. We can call this a seven-fold acclamation of the worthiness of the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. These are the same kinds of acclamations that were being directed exclusively to the Ancient of Days back in chapter 4. Now, the Lamb is the recipient of the acclamation. Verse 13, just in case we're still not quite getting it. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, meaning all of creation, all that has life, all that has any level or measure of understanding at all, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. So in chapter four, it was exclusive to the one who sits on the throne, the ancient of days. Now the lamb has joined him on the throne. As, as is described earlier in the book of Revelation is Jesus sitting upon his father's throne. The only being other than the ancient of days in all of history that's allowed to sit upon that throne. 
And this is not the point of the study. It's not the point of this passage, but I would just say this. In Ephesians chapter two, Paul makes one of the most amazing declarations and descriptions of our relationship to the one who is now seated upon the throne. And he says, in him, in Christ, you and I are seated on that throne. Not because we deserve it, not because we qualified, not because we earned it, but because we now are in him. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. All right. Um, I got through about half of my stuff today. But I'm going to just let the rest pass its way. I will just say this, though. Going back to Acts chapter 1, and we'll end here this morning. And um, we will be doing communion in just a moment. Let me just reread the detail as the the focal point of, of these last two studies, today's and last week's. Verse 9 again, Acts 1, 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And then he continues on into heaven. And he continues into the throne room. And he passes between the 24 thrones and he passes beyond the four living creatures and he walks up to the throne of God and he takes the scroll out of the hand of the Ancient of Days and then he sits upon the throne with the Ancient of Days and all of heaven and all of creation direct appropriate worship to him. Let's, um, let's have the elders come forward. <clears throat> 